Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. So good to see you this morning, worshiping together in this place. September the 12th, 1940, these four boys in southwest France and a dog discovered a cave. The cave became known as the Lusco Cave, uh, and it became famous for the fact that it has over 6,000 cave drawings that archaeologists date back 14,000 years. Now, most of the drawings in the cave are uh, of bulls and, you know, uh, uh, elk and deer and things like that that they would have hunted. Uh, but there, is, uh, there are a, a couple of things that are interesting. For one, they, there is a, uh, a picture of an extinct rhinoceros, which would be interesting. Nobody thinks of rhinoceros being in France. Um, there's a dead guy that they, somebody drew, stick figure. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. There are uh, stencils of hands, of human hands. 14,000 years ago, the hand looks exactly like our hands would today. And what was interesting is, as I started reading about cave art, I, I discovered that that's a thing. That in every cave, doesn't matter where it is, if it's in China or if it's in France or wherever the cave is, these prehistoric cave drawings, they always have stenciled hands. And I thought, you know, that's interesting because when I was a little kid, I drew an outline of my hand and, you know, turned it into a turkey and gave it to my mom, right? And then when my boys were old enough, they drew a stencil of their hands and turned into a turkey and gave it to us. And then my grandkids the other day came home, uh, well, not the other day, but around Thanksgiving, and they had drawn their hand and turned it into a turkey and gave it to us. So this must be a thing. Like everywhere in the world, prehistoric or otherwise, people love to draw their hands. I don't know why. You know, I can picture Adam and Eve like, you know, Eve's like, what are you doing, Adam? Well, uh, I'm drawing my hand. Hang on just a second. I'm almost done, you know. Now, people would flock to that cave. It was discovered in the 40s. Uh, by the 50s, all of this traffic was coming through at 1,200 people a day, and they said, look, it's ruining the paintings. There's mold starting to grow on the paintings. We can't let people anymore. So they, they put a door in, sealed off the cave, which made everybody sad because nobody can see the pictures anymore. And so the French government did something I thought was pretty clever. They decided to make exact reproductions of the caves and the artwork inside of the cave. And so uh, you can go today somewhere over there, wherever it is, and you can go in and you can see the fake cave and you can see the reproductive artwork. But, you know, there's just something missing about it to me because there's something to the fact of knowing that somebody 10,000 years ago put their hand on that wall and and blew some paint around it and you get leave the impression of that old hand and you know now that on these fake ones it's not really a real hand one guy said it this way he said you can go to the fake cave see nearly identical hand stencils but you will know this is not the thing itself but a shadow of it and it was that last line you will know this is not the thing itself but a shadow of it that really struck me because when I pick up the Bible, I read in Hebrews a description of the law and of the Old Testament. It said, those things were shadows. It uses the same kind of phraseology. It says, uh, for example, in Hebrews 10 verse 1, for the law, that is the Old Testament, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. Paul said that too in Colossians. He said, those things, those traditions, all those things of the Old Testament were shadows of the real that has come in Christ. 
But now that doesn't mean that the shadow is unimportant because the shadows of the Old Testament do a couple of things for us. Uh, the shadow prophecies really do two important things. I think the first is they validate the legitimacy of, of Jesus. Did you know that there were 61 prophecies in the Old Testament related specifically to Jesus that were fulfilled in Christ? What are the odds of that happening? Years ago, I was reading Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he quoted a guy named Peter Stoner out of Science Speak. Stoner was a mathematician and astrophysicist who uh, had calculated the probability that any one person living at any point in history would live and fulfill eight of the prophecies that were related to Jesus out of the Old Testament and into the New. And he said the probability of that happening is 1 in 10 to the 17th which means that's 1 in 10 to the uh, 100 quadrillion. You know, sometimes it sounds like they're just making up words. It's like a quintillion, a, a Brazilian, you know. It's, it's like all, one, in, 1 in 10 to the 1, one in 100 quadrillion. You're like, I, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? And then he, he said it works like this. You could take silver dollars and you could cover the state of Texas. Now, I know Texas is about 800 and... 30-something miles wide from Beaumont to El Paso, and it's probably wider than that going from Brownsville up to Amarillo. But you could cover the entire state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. That would be one in 10 to the 17th or one in 100 quadrillion silver dollars. And then you blindfold someone and you say to her, look, you can walk as far as you want. You can go north, south, east, or west, walk as far as you want. But when you bend over to pick up one silver dollar, it would have to be the silver dollar that I marked. That's the likelihood of any one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies, and yet there were 61 about Jesus. And so these shadows that come to us from the old bring validation to the new of who Jesus was. Um, and, and then I think even more importantly, the shadows give higher definition to the real thing. Really, the key to art is in the shadows. It's in the shading. And the great artists will use shadows and shade to create higher definition. And I think that's exactly what God did with the Old Testament. So I was thinking, you know, on Easter, what I'd really like to do is pick up one of these shadows from the old and let it create a high-definition image of who Jesus really is and what that means to us right now. And I thought to do that, I really want to pick up one of the most troubling things that Jesus ever said, and he said it while he was on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've heard a lot of sermons on this uh, where the pastor said that was the moment that God took all the sins of mankind, including yours and mine, and he put them on Jesus on the cross so that Jesus became our substitute. And in that moment where all the sins of all eternity were placed upon Jesus, the father turned his head away because he could not look at that sin. And in that moment, Jesus, sensing the Father turning his head, says out loud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, 
It is true that our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. So it is true that that was, a, that was the whole purpose of the cross, that the one who was without sin became sin on our behalf. Uh, theologians call this substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus became your substitute. He went to the cross for you. He took your whooping. Have you ever taken someone else's whooping? That's what Christ did, only it was more than a whooping. He took your death sentence. And the Bible says that now, when by faith, we place our trust in Christ the atoning grace and mercy of the cross becomes applied to our lives so that it covers our sins. It is not as if we're no longer going to sin, but it covers the sin. And God looks at our lives through the mercy of Christ, and we pass from judgment into life. That is true. But it's that second part that's troubling, the part where they say God looked away because he couldn't look at sin. Now, Habakkuk says that God doesn't look at sin but in that case, he's talking about recurring practice of sin. And, and I got to thinking about that. If God can't look on sin, then how could he look on me? How could he see me? How could he see you? So maybe there's more to this, and that's where the shadow comes in, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about quickly this morning because a couple of things. Notice when Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he, he said he cried out with a loud voice. Look, when we're feeling a sense of despair and we're feeling that sense of abandonment, we don't normally cry out. We would whisper that, God, why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? Now, unless he was just super angry and he's like, he's like, Father, why have you done this? But normally, and I really think there's a point to that. And the point is, I don't think he was expressing his despair so much as he was proclaiming. He was in the process of preaching there's a second clue to this, and that is the fact that it used foreign language. You see, the Bible was written in Greek, and so when a translator translates the Bible, he gets to the Greek, he translates it to the English, and that's that. But in this case, there were two other languages involved. There was Aramaic, Lama Sabachthani, and there was Hebrew, Eli, Eli. And in, in fact, the writers who wrote the, the original, who were writing it in Greek, included the Hebrew and included the Aramaic so that it had to be translated twice, which means, my God, my God, why have you... Now, why would they do that? Well, Aramaic was the language of the people. That was the language that everybody spoke in their daily lives. But Hebrew was the language of learning. When those little Hebrew children growing up in the synagogue, were taught the scriptures. They were taught it in Hebrew. So that just like when you hear a piece of a song, it brings a recollection. You know, some people, we've heard songs so much, you can hear the first couple of notes and you know immediately what that song is. Well, that's the way scripture became to them because they memorized it and they memorized it in Hebrew. So when they heard Eli, Eli, their minds would have collectively and immediately, if they were Hebrew, gone back to Psalm 22, because that's exactly how that psalm works. And that psalm is a shadow that creates definition of who Jesus is and, and what his intention and purpose was, not only on the cross, but for us today. So let's go look at Psalm 22. It says this, my God, my God, again, Hebrew, Eli, Eli, 
L is God and E is the possessive. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David writing 950 years before Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Now remember, Jesus is on the cross. He's barely able to breathe. They say that most people who die on the cross die of suffocation because you can't breathe when you're down like this. So to breathe, you have to push up on your feet to get a breath, and that creates excruciating pain coming up from the spike that's going through your feet. And so in his effort to breathe, all he can say is the first part of it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. And he wanted us to hear because he wanted Psalm 22 to speak to us this truth that he couldn't say while he was on the cross, but it's the truth nonetheless he wanted us to hear. And so Psalm 22 really speaks for him. And here's what it says. First of all, he knows your pain. He knows your pain. You see, Jesus was in real pain on the cross and like we are, he understands what pain is. You don't have a, the Hebrews said, you don't have a high priest who can't identify with our, with our pain and our suffering, but one who suffered just like us, only more so. And that pain came in various ways. First is the spiritual pain. And that's that pain that comes when you, you know, you're hurting and you don't know the way and things are unclear and your life seems tangled up in a mess and you cry out to God, God, fix this, answer this, do something. And yet heaven sometimes seems silent. I mean, read verse two. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And remember the guy who has started this psalm reminding people of this psalm had just been a sleepless night in Gethsemane crying out to the Father. And we feel forsaken in that moment when we say, like, God, help me in this. And he doesn't seem to be quick to respond. And so we feel forsaken by the divine. But notice that the next verse starts with that little word, yet. Verse 3, yet. Here's what I feel. I'm feeling forsaken, yet. You are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He, he's saying, this is how I feel, but I, I know that this is not what is real. When heaven is silent, I have to recall what I already know about him and what I remember about what he's done. Verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you, you delivered them. This is what I know about you. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. This is why we have to constantly remember the things. Uh, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits because the days will come when, when darkness falls and heaven is silent. And you have to remember, God, I know who you are, and I remember what you've done. Second is the emotional pain. But I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. This is Psalm 22, 6. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, and look at this, verse 8. This is stunning. Because what he says here are the exact words said to Jesus recorded in Matthew 27, 39 through 44. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Jesus in that moment was unloved and bullied and he felt threatened. Have you ever felt threatened? I mean, really threatened. I remember when I was in the seventh or eighth grade, there was a big kid. You know, some kids are held back, held back, held back. And then they're just big and, you know, they ride a you know, a Honda 75 to, to junior high, 
I mean, that guy, Joe. And I did something to make Joe mad. Joe put the word out. It's like the hit. I'm going to pound die after school. That was the longest sixth period of my life. (laughs) You ever felt threatened? My little grandson, Finn, just turned four. And Finn was with his other papa, and they were in a golf cart with his siblings and his cousins, and they were in the enchanted forest. I don't know whose idea that was, but his cousins had convinced him there was a witch's house, some old abandoned house in the enchanted forest. Of course, Finn doesn't even have any idea what a witch is, but it was pretty terrifying for a four-year-old. And then all of a sudden, the batteries of the golf cart died, not a part of the plan. So now they got to walk out of the enchanted forest with who knows what coming after them. And I said to Finn, I said, Finn, were you afraid? And he said, no, I was freaking out. (laughs) You want to know what emotional pain is? You start freaking out. You don't know what to do, so you just start doing something. It's a pretty honest assessment. But look, there's another yet here. Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast, upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Again, what I feel isn't real because I'm feeling that you don't love me. I'm I'm feeling that I'm alone in this and that the whole world has turned against me. But I know I'm loved and I know that you've loved me from the very start and that love is what allows us to conquer fear because I don't have to base my sense of worth and value on the opinions of others or what other people say. Just be near me, God. Let me know you're with me. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They've opened their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. And then, of course, there's physical pain, spiritual, emotional, physical. He's describing a crucifixion of Jesus 950 years before Jesus was crucified. And watch this. Jesus, of course, was hanging by his arms. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. You know that Jesus died of heart failure. Doctors today would say that it was congestive heart failure because when the Romans went to make sure he was dead, they stuck a spear through his side and out came blood and water. And they think the water was in the pericardium, which is the sac around the heart, creating a a congestion that would not allow the heart to beat fully. And so they would say from that his heart uh, had given out. But, But look what he says. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. And remember, too, that Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Of course, in crucifying someone, they would drive the spikes through the top and bottom of his foot and through his wrists. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare. These are things that Jesus couldn't say while on the cross, but through this shadow of David, he was saying through the prophecy. 
This is really what I want you guys to hear. That's what Jesus was saying. And then it gets really spooky because in, in uh, the descriptions of the crucifixion and the trials that were occurring on that Friday morning, one of the things that happened was Pilate sent Jesus to Herod Agrippa, the Galilean ruler, and he put a robe on Jesus, a purple robe, and sent him back to Pilate as a joke. Well, Jesus still had that robe when they when they brought him to the cross and the Roman soldiers came across that robe and they, they didn't want to tear it because it was a seamless garment. And so they, they cast lots to see who would get the robe. And that's, that's in John chapter 19, verse 23, if you want to read the New Testament. But right here in Psalm 22, 18, written again 950 years before it happened, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Stunning. But one more time, look, but, but, verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus, is, he's crushed, he's bruised, he's broken, his men have fled. Pain is exploding in his mind and soul. Darkness has fallen, the battle appears lost. And all the things... All those feelings that run through us ran through him. All the hurts that you experience in your life, maybe you're there right now, somebody's betrayed you, maybe you betrayed yourself, that addiction feels stronger than God, and, and you're just struggling with it. It's, it's, it's stunning how deep the darkness can be on a person's life. We had an 11-year-old girl in our community last week who took her own life, 11 years old. What's going on? What, what's happening in our world? The degree of despair and darkness. And I got to say, some of you may be close to that right now. I mean, when we dress up for Easter, we put on our best, we put on our smiles, we go, everybody's great and everybody's fine for Easter, right? But what's happening on the inside is not always the same as what happens on the outside. And I want you to hear Jesus knows your pain, but he also knows hope. You see, Psalm 22 starts out with feelings of abandonment, but it ends with a shout of hope. And that's what I want you to hear today. He knows where you are. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows what you feel, but he wants to give you hope. And that's why he quoted Psalm 22 while he's on the cross. Not just to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for the whole thing. He wanted the whole thing read. And look how it ends. He gives you his hope. You know, one of the last things he said on the cross was, it is finished. It is finished. Into thy, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's what he says to the Father in prayer. It is finished. But notice he didn't say, I am finished. He wasn't finished. He said, it is finished. What was finished? Well, the work of atonement was finished. The fact that he fully satisfied the wrath of God by by allowing himself to be placed on the cross as the substitute for us, that was finished. The work of redemption was complete, but Jesus wasn't finished. I mean, in that moment, it looked like he was finished. The crowd thought he was finished. The Romans thought he was finished. The disciples thought he was finished. Satan thought he was finished. I can just see Satan, you know, with the demons in hell, you know, high-fiving each other. We got him. We got him. We finally got him. He's done. We beat him. Keep reading. Verse 22. I notice the future tense. 
People who are finished don't talk in future tense. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. You know, it's like one of those movies where the, where the hero has been beaten and crushed and broken down and he's lying face down on the mat and the, and the enemy thinks he's won and he thinks he's got it. And then all of a sudden you can see in the background, he's starting to pick himself up. And you're hearing that music begin to play, rising in crescendo, like Rocky, you know. And all of a sudden it's like, he's up. And he's like, I'm not finished Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he... Now look at this. Read this again. It drives me crazy how people treat the word. Because this is the exact opposite of what you've heard people say about this passage on the cross. Look at what he says. Nor has he hidden his face from him. Isn't that exactly what you've heard people say? In that moment when sin came upon Jesus on the cross, he hid his face. He says he hasn't hidden his face. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. He said this, he didn't hide his face. He hears my cry. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember to turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation will ri- will worship before you. By now it's a shout of victory for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. This is one of those moments I wish I was a black pastor. Because I could finally do it right, you know. Said, oh, it's Friday. Jesus is in the tomb. And everybody thinks it's gone. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday and darkness has fallen. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. And and they think that, that the end is happening. But Sunday's coming. That's what he's saying. It's a crescendo of hope. And we've lost that. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Notice in Romans chapter 14, 11, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue. We're, we came from dust, we're headed to dust. And he just said, those who go down to dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And that, that's exactly what happened. Then they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That's you and me, that he has performed it. He's saying, I feel forsaken, but I know God hasn't forsaken me. And he hasn't forsaken you. This is not the end. It's the beginning. The generation to come will declare his righteousness. Here's the thing. Jesus wasn't finished. He was just finishing up. You see, on the cross... He defeated sin. Three days later, when they got to the tomb and there was no stone there and it was empty, he defeated death. He wasn't finished. He was just finishing up. And here's what I want you to hear. He's not finished with you either. I know you're going through pain. Maybe your marriage is breaking up. Maybe your kids have deeply disappointed you. 
Maybe you got that report back from the doctor you didn't want to hear. Maybe you don't know how you're going to make next month's house note. There's a lot of pain in this world. God told me one time, he said, preach to hurts and you'll always have an audience because there's a hurt on every pew. And we're hurting. I want you to hear, he knows your pain, but he's not finished with you. Because that tomb was empty. And he wants you to share his hope. That's what Easter's all about. No matter what you've done, God loves you and has a plan for your life. No matter what's been done to you, God loves you and has a plan for your life. But you have to receive it. It's a gift offered that must be received. And you have to let him in. And you need to do that right now. The beauty of this story, of this beautiful shadow from the past, it's like a... It's like a handprint that God had outlined and left for 950 years until Jesus put his hand on the wall and it fit him perfectly. The beauty of that handprint is he knows your pain and he's not finished with you. He shares his hope. That's the story of Easter. And that's the story for you right now. Would you receive it? Say, how do I receive it? Just cry out to God. God, best I know how. Here I am. All that I know about me, I give to all that I understand about you. Take my life. Take my hurts. Take my heartache. And Father, change me. And in that moment when you cry out to him, the power of grace is appropriated to your life. The power of the Holy Spirit indwells you. And you find that God will do in you what you could never do for yourself but you have to release and give it to him. Would you do that right now? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have a Lord who understands us. You get us. You know spiritual, emotional, physical pain. You know what we're going through. And we thank you, Father, that we're not alone. We thank you, Lord, that you have shared your hope that Christ came, died for our sins, and then he was resurrected on that third day so that we could have hope. There's hope in this shadow. And I pray for those right now who need to give their life to you. God, just let them just release control. Say, God, here I am. I just cry out to you, do with me what only you can do and heal me. Father, we thank you for the healing and the hope that comes through Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.